Hey, Joe, go ahead and start laughing. <laughs> Joe, Joe came to my house, was about a month ago, and, and, and fixed the toilet that I had fixed that I broke while I was fixing it. Um, so, I, so I have this vacuum cleaner, and it's, uh, it's an upright. It doesn't seem to be all that difficult to put together. There's only about seven or eight moving parts, and how difficult could seven or eight moving parts be? Well, about 40 minutes later, I said, okay, we're going to go ahead and read the instructions now and, and get this thing figured out, and, and we finally did get it put together, and it actually works wonderfully. Uh, but maybe you've had that experience where you look at something and you go, how hard can it be? I mean, really. You know, I have a college degree, or I've, I work with my hands all the time, or, you know, whatever the case may be, or I've raised kids before. How hard can this be? I think a lot of Christians come into the faith, and they, they're so enamored with Jesus, and, and they're so captured by the grace of God that they kind of look at their walk with Christ, and they kind of say that, how hard can it be? Now, I don't think that that means that, that people take their faith lightly. I don't think it means that, that people aren't sincere. I, I very sincerely wanted to get that vacuum cleaner put together. But there, there are ways to approach discipleship other than looking at it and going, you know, I love Jesus, that, that's pretty much the whole story. We're in a year-long series in discipleship, and where we're going to go uh, starting today and pretty much for the calendar year of 2014, we'll, we'll pretty much wrap this up by the time we get to next year's time to take a break for Christmas. We're going to be looking at the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to be studying this teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples. Now, let me tell you what, what some folks have said about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, John Stott said this, it's the manifesto of the, the Christian counterculture, and he uses that word counterculture very specifically. Michael Green, who's a, a modern-day commentator on the, on the book of Matthew, and so he studied the Sermon on the Mount extensively, and he uses some of the same language, a Christian manifesto of the kingdom. So it's kind of like if you want to get Christianity encapsulated and you want to go to one place and kind of look at a, at a smaller uh, of context of it, the Sermon on the Mount, these three chapters would be a great place to get a good view of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. James Boyce, who, who passed away a few years ago, was a pastor at 10th Pres Church in Philadelphia for years, one of the oldest churches in the United States, was talking about how, how much had been written or how much had been, uh, the sermon had been talked about. He said the Sermon on the Mount is the best known and most extensively studied discourse in the world. There are now books about the books written about the sermon. Though well, the Sermon on the Mount is, is in a sense, it is our, uh, it, it, it's, a, it's the directions. <laughs> it's understanding what it means to actually be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, there are several different verses you could probably pick for a theme verse. I'm going to give you the one that I think best represents the overall message of the Sermon on the Mount. I think if you want to just boil it down to its purest form, I would go to chapter 6 and I would look at verse 33 where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God is a word you're going to hear over and over and over again. It's like when we got to, to Romans a few years ago, right? And we said, you know, justification and righteousness. You know, you're going to get a little tired of hearing those words because you're going to hear them over and over again in, in Jesus's teaching. Kingdom of God is something you're going to hear a whole bunch in Matthew 5 through 7. And his righteousness. 
and all these things will be added to you. In other words, seek first the kingdom of God, and we're going to pick this apart, but let me, let me put it to you in a nutshell. Seek first the grace of God, and then how to follow Jesus. That's, that's how, if I was going to put it in, in a modern-day sentence, that's how I would do it. Seek first the grace of God, because we come into the kingdom of God by his grace, not by our works, but then we learn how to follow Jesus. That's the righteousness of God, what it means to, to follow him. So that is the, that's the theme verse that I'm going to pick, and you may study it and pick a different one, and that's just absolutely fine. Let me tell you how we're going to look at this this morning. All we're going to do this morning is do an overview of the Sermon on the Mount. We're just going to kind of learn how to look at the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to do that in two ways. The first part of the sermon, we're going to talk about how do we understand it or how do we, how do we study it? How do we approach the Sermon on the Mount? And there, there are four sub-points there that we're going to look at. And then we're going to begin to talk immediately about application. Uh, because at Green Tree, we believe very strongly in studying the Word of God. If you're new to Green Tree, you're never going to come to Green Tree where the pastor, whoever's preaching, doesn't say, now open up your Bibles and we're going to study God's Word. But hopefully, any Sunday you come to Green Tree, we will be also wrestling with the so what question or what does it matter question. Now that I know this, now that I understand it, what does it mean when I go to work tomorrow morning? What does it mean when I go back and, and engage in my marriage? What does it mean for me while I'm raising my children? How do I apply this in the context of, of the organizations with which I volunteer? How do I live my life as a disciple of Jesus? So we're going to have application hopefully built all the way through the series, and we're going to have three application points for us this morning. So before we jump in, to, uh, to the sermon, to understanding and applying the sermon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that not only have you given us your word in Scripture, but Jesus was the word of God in the flesh. He was a word we like to use often. He was the manifestation. He was the physical, visible, we could see, we could touch, we could feel. Human being was God in the flesh. And he came in a moment in history. And many people witnessed his earthly ministry. And we come for this year, Lord, to this particular section of the time that Jesus spent on earth when he sat down with his disciples. And he said, we're going to take some time to talk about what discipleship is all about. And so, Lord, I thank you that this is, this is applicable for every one of us this morning. Father, for those of us who call ourselves disciples, who identify ourselves as disciples of Jesus... We say we, we've come to him in faith, we trust in his forgiveness, and, and we are his followers. Lord, every one of us, as we study this text, will be reminded of where we've fallen short and where we haven't lived as disciples, but will also hopefully be encouraged and reminded that the new life you have given us leads us into a deeper discipleship a deeper love for you. And Father, for those of us that are here that are perhaps exploring what it means to be a Christian, what, what great timing. Uh, to be a green tree, because that's what we're going to talk about, what it means to be a disciple. So, Lord, whatever brought us here this morning, whatever circumstances in which we find ourselves, we thank you that in your sovereign plan, we're here to, uh, to study what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Lord, I, I better not define that for us. Uh, my words are not important. Only yours is. So, Lord, we pray for, for understanding your word this morning. Forgive me for my sin, Lord. You know how great my sin is. If we are looking to me, we're in big trouble. But I pray that you would uh, use your word and your spirit through me to share with my friends what it means 
to follow you, to your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, so there are four subpoints to the understanding of the sermon. So we're going to jump right into those. And I'm going to kind of bounce around scripture-wise. So if your Bible open, you, you know, kind of can get, you know, it's on Matthew 5, 6, and 7, or just on a couple of pages. So you can, you can follow in your own scripture, or you can watch on the text. But uh, the first subpoint in understanding the sermon is we need to understand the context of the sermon. We need to understand what, what Jesus was after. And if you look at the first, at the introductory verses... In Matthew chapter 5, it says that Jesus saw the crowds. And if you read chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, Jesus has massive crowds following him from Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee. There are throngs of people. And so Jesus looks at the crowds and he says, you know what, it's time to kind of get away from the crowds. It's time to just kind of take the team away and have a private conversation. So he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, so he's in the teaching position in Jesus' day, when the rabbi wanted to spend some time passing on information, doing some instruction, doing some teaching, giving some inspiration to his followers, he would sit, and they would come, and they would sit around him, and they would then have a teaching that would lead into a conversation. So it says that he sat down, and his disciples came to him, not the crowds, not the throngs, but his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them. The context of, this, uh, of, of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus teaching his disciples. And that's an important thing for us to understand. Ultimately, the sermon is of no value, void of, of life in Christ that begets discipleship. In other words, if you are someone who's looking at Christianity from the outside in, and you look at the Sermon on the Mount and you, and you see something along the lines of, Love your, love your neighbor as yourself, or, or be kind to others, or be generous in giving to the needy. You might see that, and you might say, well, that's good for anybody. And on one side of the conversation, I wouldn't argue with you about that. If more people gave to the needy, that would probably be a very, very good thing. If more people were gracious and kind to the folks around them, that would be a very, very good thing. But Jesus isn't talking about how to live a better life. Jesus is talking about what it means, and we'll see this next week when we look at the very first beatitude. Jesus is talking about a life surrendered to him as Lord. So we're an individual in history that we all are aware of. Mahatma Gandhi used to take bits and pieces of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the nonviolence of the Sermon on the Mount, and he would apply just that part to his life. But there are other parts that he completely ignored. Ultimately, at the end of the day, it did his soul no good. Ultimately, at the end of the day, if you just take these as some rules to live by, it will do your soul no good. Jesus is speaking in the context of his disciples. I had a man say to me one time, you know, I, I, I've read the Sermon on the Mount, and I like that idea about, you know, about loving others. And I said, well, yeah, that, that's good, and I hope you do that. But you know, the first half of it is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which actually isn't even in the Sermon on the Mount, but we didn't get into that, that part of the conversation. I said, you're never going to love others until you've given yourself completely to God. So we need to understand this morning, brothers and sisters and friends, that, that this is not a series on morality. This is not a series on how to be a better neighbor or a better husband or a better wife or a better school teacher or a better businessman or businesswoman or doctor or lawyer. That may happen in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, but the context is how do we come under the lordship of Jesus Christ? I want to go down a side road for just a second. He sat down, 
His disciples came to him, and he taught them. I want to challenge all of us, myself included, who live in an extraordinarily busy world where every distraction imaginable, uh, including the greatest distraction of our lives, which is now what about yay big and, and fits in our pocket and it goes everywhere with us. Some of you are actually reading scripture off of it this morning or actually taking notes on it this morning. I want to encourage all of us to learn to sit at the feet of Jesus. And we're going to mention that from time to time as this series goes on. Jesus pulls his disciples in a way. He says, come on, we're going to go and we're going to get to a, to a place where you're not distracted. And we're going to talk about discipleship. How often do you sit at the feet of Jesus? How often do I stop myself and say, before uh, anything else happens today, before the sun comes up, I'm going to get alone with my Lord and I'm going to listen to his teaching. We are so distracted by the things around us. Moms and dads, how are we teaching our children to sit at the feet of Jesus. I'm happy when you bring your kids into the worship service. I want you to know that. I don't care if they squirm. I don't care if they move around in the worship service. I don't care if they, to a certain degree, distract the folks around them. We, we, we get that. We understand them. We want them to behave. But how else are they going to learn to sit at the feet of Jesus unless they go to a Sunday school class, unless they come to a worship service? Sure, a lot of it may be over their heads. They may not get all of it right now, but they're learning to sit at the feet of Jesus. We need to teach our children by doing that ourselves. We need to understand this context is coming and sitting at the feet of Jesus. But something else that this sermon does is not only gives us the context, which is discipleship, but Jesus also uses the Sermon on the Mount to do a lot of clarifying. So if you look at verses like chapter 5, verse 27, and, and the idea here, and it happens mostly in chapter 5, where Jesus says, it's not this, but it's that. Okay, you're gonna, we're going to see that a lot, in particular in the latter half of chapter 5. So he clarifies a lot of things. So I'll give you a couple examples in 5. You have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, so not this, but anyone who looks, or everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus is saying, you, you have an understanding but it needs to be clarified because your understanding is a bit cloudy. Let me give you one other example of clarification. Uh, later on in verses 43 and 44, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, so here's the not this, but love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You see, what happens is that man's traditions and man's rules, not just in Jesus' day, but in our day, we put a lot of kind of rules. We put a lot of, of different things that, you know, the good Christian person does uh, void of the gospel. And, we, and we, what we end up doing is we distort the grace of God. We also, therefore, distort his holiness. Because the way to follow God, the way to honor God, begins with grace and continues with grace. And so Jesus said, you've heard that if you do this much, you're good. But what I want to say to you is it's a matter of your heart. I want to say to you that I am about transforming the deepest fiber of your being. So we have to be careful as we read the Sermon on the Mount to let Jesus clarify these things for us, to let Jesus lead us to a deeper understanding so that we can apply it to our lives. Um, I mentioned the application. I, I was talking with someone over the Christmas holidays and they were talking to me about how a relationship with a neighbor had just deteriorated, and it was, it was literally just awful. I mean, if 25% of what this person was sharing with me was accurate, I would want to move today. I mean, they, their neighbor was just being 
awful to them. And, and as, we, as I sat and I listened to this, and, and I shared this a little bit, I said, oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I really hate to be the one to tell you this, but, but God's taking you through a process of teaching you to love your enemy. I mean, this person is awful to you. And, and the scripture's clear. Love them. Pray for them. Man, I'm glad I'm not in your shoes. <laughs> you know, what, a, what an encouraging pastor I am. Um, because this stuff is hard, friends. This stuff is hard. That verse is as clear as can be. There's not, a five-year-old could come in here and understand that. Love your enemies and pray for them. That is not difficult to understand. You go on and try that and apply that to your life every day this week and see how it works out. This is tough stuff. And so we need to understand that Jesus is going to clarify for us, and it isn't always going to be easy. It's, it's going to tug at our hearts. It's going to challenge us. It's going to make us want to say, eh, Jesus, I, I don't know if I can quite go that far. So if you, if you begin to feel that way on a Sunday, don't worry. You know, there are others of us in, in the congregation having the same challenge and the same struggle, but praise God that Jesus takes time to set us right. This is not about your, your simple, petty, surface rules. I want to clarify. I want to get down to the heart issues of your life. So we understand the context of the sermon. We understand that Jesus wants to clarify some things for us in the sermon, but he also wants to contrast some things for us. And again, let me give you an example. And so this is where Jesus says, don't be like this, okay? And maybe moms and dads have done that and said, now you see what you know, little Johnny over there is doing? Don't, don't be like that, you know, be like this instead. And that's what Jesus is doing. And he gives a couple of examples. And actually, we looked at, at this passage of Scripture very quickly in the fall. We're going to come back to it later in the spring. Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And then a little bit later on in that, that same teaching, Jesus says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. He goes on to say, they think they'll be heard because of their, of their many, many words. Okay? So Jesus is saying that, that you see a behavior out there and you see that behavior in who? Religious people or people that claim to be religious. And I got to tell you something, they're going down the wrong pathway. Don't, don't be like that. Or you see people that, that have rejected the God of Israel, but they still are people of prayer. They, they're practicing a false religion. And they're very, very pious in their false religion. But guess what? They got it wrong. You can't be like that if you're going to be one of my disciples. And so there's a, there's a contrast. So Stott's idea of this Christian counterculture actually begins with radically different priorities. It, it begins with, with, a, with, a, with a very different way of looking at the world. This particular verse up here, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 5, he says, they love to stand on the street corners that they may be seen by others. He says, he goes on to say in verse 6, but when you pray, go in your closet, close the door, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He goes on to say after this, when you pray, do not a peep empty uh, heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, but pray to your Father who already knows what you need. So when you pray, pray like this, our Father. And then he gives the, the Lord's Prayer. So he gives very specific directions on how we need to, to move in a different direction. And what he's saying is you have different priorities. And, and in fact, your life really is lived to be lived with, for an audience of one. Because when you pray, go in your closet, close your door, and talk to your Father. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases because your father already knows what you need. It's an audience of one. What if starting 
uh, as we walked out these doors. Every one of us actually lived our lives, those of us who claim to be a disciples, every day with two purposes, that we're going to glorify our Father and that we're going to enjoy Him. What if that was really the goal of my life and your life in a very practical way? Doesn't matter whether I'm an accountant or a doctor or a pastor or a teacher, whatever, whatever, wherever I find myself. Doesn't matter if I have a good marriage or a bad marriage. Doesn't matter if I'm a great parent or an awful parent. That I'm actually going to live my life to glorify my Father and enjoy Him. What difference would that make in my life as a disciple? So we're going to see Jesus contrasting and saying, not this, don't be like this, but... And then lastly, what we're going to see is that the, the, the kingdom of God does call for a commitment. It, it means that we lay aside other things in order for us to follow Jesus. And that, that brings me to... And actually, that's a misprint. That should say 625 and 33. I, I failed to correct that. Don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. My allegiance, first and foremost, above all else, as a disciple of Jesus, must be to the king and to his kingdom. Now, if you're going to live that way, if I'm going to live that way, you have to say, well, over and against what? Over and against loyalty or, or allegiance to what? To a political party, uh, to, uh, to accumulation of wealth, to, uh, to, you know, to making uh, you know, success, my God. And I would say all of those things are the tips of the iceberg that you can see, but are the smallest point of the iceberg, because all of those things actually point to the inner issue in everyone's soul in this room this morning, young or old, man or woman, disciple or not disciple. The issue of our lives is that we have a primary allegiance and loyalty and love to ourselves. So my desire for success is simply a manifestation or simply an example of how I'm going to live for me and for nobody else. I could say I'm going to be the greatest parent in the world because I want people to know I'm the greatest parent in the world. And by the way, my kids get a benefit for that. I, even in the good things of life, if I'm not careful, I can live for a loyalty that is only to Tom Ricks. First and foremost, everything else is secondary. And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about what you'll wear. The pagans run after these things. They think that life is 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 years. Life is eternal. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and follow me and trust me in this and let your father take care of the rest of that. If we live like disciples of Jesus, it's going to mean a shift in our focus away from a loyalty for, to ourselves and a loyalty to the king and, and to his cause. Uh, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, you remember that scene in the book or in the movie where Strider, you don't know he's, he's Aragorn yet, you don't know he's the great king, but Strider's talking to Frodo and he says, if by life or death I can save you, I will. It, that's a statement of allegiance. That's a statement of a guy saying, there's something more important than my own life. Frodo, the, 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 the quest you're on is, is more important than any of us. So if it takes my death to save you and help you, I'll give that. Jesus says, that's the commitment. Because Jesus looked at your soul and he looked at my soul. And he said, that's what it's going to take. The cross is the price for my salvation. The cross is the price for your salvation. So we ought not be surprised, fellow disciples, or those of you looking in, wondering about discipleship, when the King and the Lord calls us to a fidelity that goes far beyond anything to which we are faithful in this world. But our, but our chief enemy there is ourself. 
So we're going to see it in the context that it's a teaching to disciples. We're going to learn some of the not this, but that. We're going to see some of the contrast. Don't be like this, but be like that. And we're going to be challenged in our commitment to our Lord Jesus. How do we apply all this this morning? Let me, let me in, a, in a short period of time, try and give you a little bit of application. The first one is this, the spiritual discipline of self-despair. And this is somewhat kindred to what I was just saying. The greatest desire of the human heart is to be right apart from Christ. You ever find yourself in a, in a disagreement with somebody and you're not listening to them at all, you're just getting ready to make your next point? Why, why you do that? Uh, you look like you're looking at them. You know, you're looking right at them and you're, and you're nodding your head. And all you're doing is you're preparing your next statement, right, because you want to be right. You, you want them to say to you, you're right, right? Marriages are destroyed over those two words. Nations go to war over those two words. Communities are broken apart by those two words because at the end of the day, that's what we want. We want to be right. And as a disciple of Jesus, we must understand that that need is only fulfilled, but is always fulfilled through the grace of God at the cross. So Paul goes so far as to say, for the desires of your flesh, that's that self-rightness, I want to be right, they're, they're at war against the Spirit. That's the righteousness that I get in Jesus. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul says, you want to know why, you, why you know, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love my kids this week with an unconditional love. I'm just going to care for them. And, you know, 20 minutes later, you blow up. Why is that? Because they don't understand that mom's right. <laughs> they don't understand that dad's right. If they just got that and they, and they obeyed me, we wouldn't have any problems around here. Right? <laughs> okay. Paul says that, that's the struggle that we have. And, and we're going to have to relearn over and over again. And when I mean like, like every day, you got to teach this to yourself. I've got to have the discipline of self-despair, which means I'm not going to trust in my rightness. I'm going to try and find it someplace else. Primarily, I'm going to find it in the righteousness of my Lord Jesus. Secondly, however, we need to understand that not only is the spiritual discipline of self-despair, but we need to understand that Jesus actually gives us the ability to follow him. Jesus actually gives us the power to, to live this new life, that it's about the Holy Spirit indwelling his disciples that allows us then to, to follow the teaching that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. So, or, or as Jesus said to Nicodemus one night when they were talking, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see what? The kingdom of God, what we're talking about, what we're going to be talking about for the next uh, 10 months, unless one is born again. But then Jesus says, that's why the Son of God came into the world, so that you could be born again. So one author put it this way, only a new birth can keep us from reading on the Sermon on the Mount with either foolish optimism or hopeless despair. See, if you're sitting here this morning, you're going, Tom, I've kind of perused through five, six, and seven while you've been talking, and uh, I, I can do this, right? How hard can it be? That's foolish optimism. If you, if you really want to let somebody into your life to follow you around for a couple of weeks, you'll find out how foolish that is. But also, there are disciples that are looking at this going, I don't think so. <laughs> I know my own heart. I know how much of a struggle it's going to be. And for you, I want to remind, just as myself, I want to remind us that the new birth that Christ has given us allows us to follow him. It allows us to see the Sermon on the Mount take deeper root in our lives and see some of these things actually become a reality in our heart. 
so that we can grow in our obedience to him. But I also want to give you a, a, a one quick sight note here under this new life in Christ. I want to remind us of something, and I said it a little bit earlier in the sermon, but I want to say it directly right now. As disciples, we're called to share the gospel with others, right? So you've had opportunities, I've had opportunities. They come up from time to time, and a, and a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker says, you know, you're a Christian. Tell me a little bit about what that means. I want to remind everybody, as, as we read something like the Sermon on the Mount, we're not bringing people to a new morality. We're not bringing people to, now, if you just follow this set of rules, everything in your life will be okay. First and foremost, always and only, we are bringing people to Jesus. Jesus is the author of our new life. So before I can begin to talk to anyone about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, I need to talk to someone about what it means to be a believer in Jesus. And that's this new life that God gives us. My last application is not, not just the, the discipline of, of self-despair. It's not only remembering that this new life is ours only through faith in Christ. I hate to be so simple, but you know what? It's just a question of practice. <laughs> if I had put 30 vacuum cleaners of the same brand together before that new vacuum cleaner arrived at my house, how long would it have taken me to put that vacuum cleaner together? About three minutes, Maybe. Because you had to kind of, like, they had all those little strings and stuff inside the box to pull stuff out. I, I, I'd have done it right like that, right? Why didn't I have that much success? I hadn't practiced enough. Hadn't just worked it out in my life on a day-to-day basis. Let me ask some questions. What do disciples do when they're mocked by people who aren't Christians? How do disciples handle things like anger or lust? What do we understand and know about marriage and divorce or how to deal with enemies or how to establish our business transactions in a way that are appropriate? How do disciples learn how to pray, be generous, have humility appropriately? How do do disciples deal with anxiety or setting priorities? What what do we do when we get into kind of a a part of our life when we're self-presumptuous? Or when we're worried that maybe we've lost our faith and and we won't persevere? How, How do Christians deal with all those things? You practice them. (laughs) How do you practice them? You study and you apply. There's no question what the Bible says about picking up divorce. There's no question what the Bible says to me as a disciple of Jesus about my humility. Again, five, six, seven-year-old could sit down, read the words, and intellectually understand them. That's not the point. We apply what we practice. Discipleship is practicing following Jesus, we don't need more data, friends. Don't need more data. We don't need more information. It's all right there. We need practice. We need to take these things and learn them and then then look at our lives and say, now today I'm going into this situation and I'm going to have to deal with an enemy. What am I going to do about that? You know, I tend to lust when I get in this situation. How How do I adjust my life to go in a different direction? You know, I'm really wrestling with anger right now. Maybe there's a, a, a brother or sister in Christ a little strong in their faith who's wrestled with anger, and they can come talk to me, and they can help me and coach me in some of these things so that my life reflects the gospel more deeply. We practice those things, and we begin to see the Spirit of God moving us in a different direction. About five years ago, when Nathan was just out of college and wasn't even dating anybody, he had, he had a job that paid him pretty well, and it was a nine-to-five job, and he had all this other time on his hands. He was not a, like a business owner where at nine o'clock at night he was getting the phone call. Nathan, by the way, is our oldest son, and he, was, and he didn't have to work on weekends, and so he lived golf. 
in his spare time. He lived golf. And in the process, he got very, very good. He got his handicap down to about four. And uh, then he began to study all the rest of us who played golf with him. And one day he comes and he says, I have something for you for Father's Day. And he hands me a new putter. He says, I've been watching how you putt. And I've been reading up on this. And I've been studying it. And I've been observing. And this is the putter that is the putter you need for the rest of your life. And he said, now I'm going to tell you one thing. You're going to, for the next month, when you try to learn to use this thing, you're going to want to break it over your knee. And you're going to want to throw it in the lake. And you're going to want to give up golf. But trust me, eventually, it'll work for you. And then we go on a golf trip. We go down to Alabama with the Robert Trent Jones, and we play like three courses down there. And every golf course we played at, almost every green, I wanted to throw the putter in a lake if there was a lake close by. I wanted to snap it over my knee. I wanted to destroy it. And then I wanted to choke him to death. Like, you're just trying to always beat me. You know, like I could ever get to a four handicap anyway. And he goes, Dad, just stay with it. Just stay with it. Just stay with it. And I, and I said things that I wouldn't ever say in church. And, I, and then one day I sunk a putt. And then, then the next hole, I kind of lipped one out, but I just had a tap in. And all of a sudden, it started working. And he was right. He had done all the research. He had done all the study. He had all the information. He understood my putting stroke. And then he helped me put it into practice. Now, that's a really dumb example of what we're going to do for the next nine months. But I, 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 I say to men all the time, let me put it in the context of our faith. I say to guys all the time, the best advice anybody ever gave me was to pray with my wife every day. The first time I prayed with my wife, it felt like I was taking sandpaper and rubbing it on my face. It was the worst feeling and the most awkward feeling I ever had in my life. And the second day I prayed with my wife, it was only slightly better. And the third day, it actually, we transgressed, and it was, it was worse. I, it was awkward. I, we, and I'm talking about like, like 10 years into our marriage, I started praying with my wife. And now I can't imagine, you know, we don't do it every day. It's not like, you know, but there, there are days we miss when I'm out the door earlier. Well, she might be. But I can't imagine a week going by without four or five times praying with Cindy. Why? Because now I've done it for like, I've got to do the math real quick, 22 years. All of a sudden, I started practicing, and now we pray, we pray for you guys. You know, if I know somebody's, somebody's here, and, and we both know you, you know, you may be the person we pray for that morning. Now you're pretty happy that I pray for my wife, aren't you? <laughs> but it's because of, it's because of this. How do, how do we handle this stuff? We practice being disciples of Jesus. Here's what John Stott says, and we're done, about the Sermon on the Mount. The standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by every man, nor totally unattainable by any man or person. He's not, he's not talking about men there. To put them beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of the Christian Christ sermon. To put them within everybody's is to ignore the reality of man's sin. They are attainable, all right, but only by those who have experienced the new birth, which Jesus told Nicodemus was the indispensable condition of seeing and entering God's kingdom. For the righteousness he described in the sermon is an inner righteousness. Although it manifests itself outwardly in words, deeds, and relationship, yet it remains essentially, as we put first things first, a righteousness of the heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus taking time to sit with his disciples and share what we're going to be studying for the next several months. Uh, and certainly what's encapsulated in these three chapters are not everything Jesus said, but they're certainly 
uh, extraordinarily important for us and applicable for us today. So, Father, I pray for every disciple of Jesus at Green Tree as we go on this part of the, the discipleship leg of this sermon series that you would be teaching us and growing us in our faith. And, Father, for our friends here who are exploring Christianity or for friends that we might bring because this would be a great chance for them to, to think a little bit about it, Lord, I pray that we would never be teaching a morality, but we would always be teaching the grace of Jesus first and then what it means to follow him. We pray in his name. Amen.